Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer Speaks Resource website, blog, and now the radio show. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with dementia. For those of you that are new to our show, I just want to give you a brief introduction to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Rick Phelps is our channel expert who actually has Alzheimer's, and I never know if he's going to pop in or not, but we will pull Rick into the show um, if he uh, comes on to the chat room or calls in live. If you haven't checked out his um, group on Facebook, it's called Memory People, and it's a closed group where people can talk in real time, get real answers with people who are in the trenches with this disease. There are people with early memory loss, their loved ones, and also business professionals on that site. And there is no pitching or sales. It's just a true support and interaction with one another. So I highly encourage you to just uh, go to Memory People on Facebook and take a peek at that group. On our homepage, you'll find links to contact both myself and Rick, so feel free to do that if you have any questions or comments that you would like to talk to us about privately. We're very open to doing that. And today, I hope that you decide to join us in becoming an advocate on steroids for Alzheimer's disease by speaking out and giving voice to those who may have lost theirs. We need to be able to spread the truth and talk openly and honestly about what this disease is doing to individuals and our society at large. If you have a question, there are two ways you can get to me while on the show if you're listening live. One is by calling in, and that phone number is 714-364-4757. Again, that number is 714-364-4757. Or if you are on the um, Internet, you can always use the chat box and uh, talk to us uh, through there, giving us your questions or comments. Today is going to be a very fun day. Um, We've got an exciting show uh, for you. What we're going to be talking about is veterans' benefits and long-term planning. And our first guest here today is Dave uh, Bosler, and he is with Senior Veterans. And Dave is a Chicago native, but he spent most of his life in Colorado Following a short stint, uh, he was in special education as a teacher in Colorado Springs, but then from there he really went into sales and marketing. Uh, David has spent years, many, many years, um, as a sales representative for uh, durable medical equipment and medical and health services. But for the past 10 years, his focus has really been on the senior industry. He sold long-term care insurance for GE, which is now Genworth, and he has been the sales trainer and marketing representative for both Brookdale Senior Living and Atria Senior Living. Recently, he spent two years doing national PR for an organization working with senior veterans, helping them get non-service connected disability uh, pensions. And that um, is kind of what rolled him into 
forming his own nonprofit called Senior Veterans LLC with his partner, Tim Zaring of Cincinnati, Ohio. Tim and Dave were actually roommates uh, back in the day at University of North Colorado. And again, they have since formed Senior Veterans in January of uh, 2011. And he has received his accreditation as a claims agent for the VA in March of 2011. Uh, Dave and Tim work with Senior Veterans surviving spouses, and families throughout the United States. And all of the services that we're going to be talking about today with Dave are free of charge, and that is mandated by federal law. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you with us today, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Lori. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And, and our hope today is that we can get this message out to as many senior veterans and surviving spouses and families throughout the United States and because that's the only way that this message gets out to people is that somebody tells somebody else. It's been around for a long, long time and the vast majority of people don't know anything about it. Well, and it's so critically important, especially in the, the economic state that we are in um, as a country, you know, being able to get some, some free monies that, you know, people, um, you know, it's, it's a personal benefit to them to check this out, and it's not going to cost them anything to do. And that's one of the miraculous things, because there aren't too many things in this world that are free, but your service truly is a free service. Can you explain um, to our audience, you know, how can you do this for free, and, and why, why did the government set it up this way? Well, this is a benefit that's been around for um, 60 years. It was actually signed into law uh, by President Eisenhower in 1951. And if people um, uh, try to understand the concept that this is a this benefit, this non-service connected disability pension, works very much like long-term care insurance very much like it. It's not long-term care insurance. So if there's anybody out there listening, especially with the VA or whatever, I'm not saying that it's the same. It's a actual non-service connected disability pension. But it was designed and it functions much like long-term care insurance. And the premium, if you will, if you can think of this as an insurance type of working similar to insurance, the premium has been paid for by the veteran's service record, and okay. uh, that's precisely how it uh, how it functions, and, and that's what verifies that somebody is either covered by this or eligible for this or is not. Um, and as far as providing services free of charge, that's also mandated uh, by Title 38 of the United States Code and, and the Code of Federal Regulations. Um, it's against the law to charge any veteran uh, for the presentation, uh, the prosecution of a claim. And so we just adhere to federal law, and, and that's the way it has to be. Therefore, that's the that was the impetus behind the formation of a nonprofit organization, because it's um, something that's mandated by law, and, and we follow that. Um, but it's been around for a long time, and again, it functions just like long-term care insurance, and it was designed for those people, for those senior veterans that are now needing help and care uh, that's delivered by 
whoever, you know, it can be anybody. And, and um, it, it significantly helps a family in terms of their finances because all the money is tax-free and it's provided for the rest of the, uh, of the, um, uh, the claimant's life. Okay. Now, my understanding, though, is that there is one loophole in terms of charging for these services, and that is that attorneys can – did I get that correct? Did I read that right, where attorneys are allowed to charge because they do estate planning and so forth? So it, it, yes, there are certain provisions in the in the code of regulations that allow attorneys to charge reasonable and customary fees. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. It's it's on a limited basis, and it's 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 very difficult and and um, very tricky when you look at the actual laws uh, and so forth. But attorneys can. Um, uh, charge for some of their services, especially if this is rolled into uh, estate planning or something uh, to that effect. Now, with that being said, the vast majority of them do not uh, charge uh, for this. Uh, they may charge a, uh, a small consultation fee or whatever. And, and you know, we really, um, quite honestly, we really stay out of that arena because we're not attorneys, and, and we state that very vehemently in our, our, um, our website. Uh, we're not uh, attorneys, we're not CPAs, we're not financial planners. Um, but uh, for being an, a VA accredited claims agent, it's very clear uh, that we um, are mandated by federal law not to charge for these services. And, and you know, quite honestly, Lori, that question is asked more than there's probably two questions we get all the time. Number one, uh, people don't believe that this is uh, true because we've all heard the old adage that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And so we get that question a lot. Uh, we get the question about why haven't we heard about this before, and then we also get the question how are how are we paid? Well, you know, it's just like any other nonprofit, and we're going to be relying on our benefactors to help us with that, uh, just like any other nonprofit. But uh, it is absolutely free of charge um, for what we do. Now, also with that being said, we are aware, and, and, and this happens all the time, where there are people out there that will go out there and, and charge people for this, and, and it's absolutely illegal to do it. But, but it happens, they get away with it, and, and that's the way it is. But uh, it all sounds too good to be true. Yeah, it it does, and and that makes people skeptical and and understandably Certainly. so, because there's so many scams and things that are out there. Well, why don't we get into um, <clears throat> a little bit? You had uh, before we roll into um, the the benefit itself. Can you give us a little more history on yourself? And you know, I know in the bio you said that you had worked quite a bit in the senior industry. Have you done much with uh, dementia at all? Uh, as a whole, or has it been different um, areas? I've been around it for a, for a long time in the senior industry. You know, I'm working as a sales and marketing director, and, and also as um, a uh, uh, I, I was doing a lot of coaching and uh, for sales and marketing directors that were working in the senior communities throughout the United States. Um, so we're always working with families and families that were um, uh, dealing with uh, issues uh, of dementia or they, they were needing care of some other type and so forth, especially as they re, uh, related to the senior communities. I have known about this benefit for years, um, and I was familiar with it um, when I was working for uh, two of the 
of the largest uh, senior uh, organizations in the country, uh, uh, Brookdale and then Atria as, as well. And I've known about it for years, and I was really fascinated with the whole concept because, it, it, again, it just sounded too good to be true. And quite honestly, how I how I how it really developed is the last, the very last class uh, that I took for my uh, my MBA was a class on a, it had something to do with strategic studies or where you could look at a particular business and enhance a particular business uh, or whatever. But I did it on the formation of a nonprofit uh, in regards to this uh, particular benefit. And so, you know, I, I laid out the whole business plan uh, from that, from that last class from my MBA. And I was fortunate enough um, uh, at that time, I was working as a sales and marketing director for uh, a senior community in Las Vegas, an atrium in Las Vegas. And I was fortunate enough to uh, be involved with an organization where I um, was doing all of the national PR for them in this same um, in the same vein, uh, you know, working with the non-service connected disability pension. And then I started out on my own uh, back in January with Tim Searing. Um so it's been I have known about it for a long time and and uh it it's been in the development process for for quite some time and and again going back to what I had said before the 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 greatest hurdle uh the greatest roadblock uh and I used to see this every single day as a sales and marketing director um for an assisted living uh community families would walk in you'd ask them the question. Uh, about whether or not mom or dad was a veteran or a surviving spouse or whatever, and if if they were to say yes, I knew there was a benefit out there that could help them dramatically pay for their care wherever that care was delivered. And the toughest thing that we um, were uh, going through, Lori, was the fact that people would not believe you that they thought mm-hmm. it, and 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 it happened all the time, and and um, it, it's just. You know, the biggest misconception is why haven't we heard about this? This has been around since 1951. They were way ahead of their time when they did this. And so yeah, it's it just is, developed. And, yes? It's it's very amazing that, it you know, it just seems like it's coming out of the closet now. And do you know what, I mean, I, I'm grateful that it has, um, you know, gotten out a little bit more. But do you know what caused it? Is it just the economic um you know, state that we're in, and they're saying, you know, we really need to tap all these different resources, or, you know, what uh, what came about to make this uh, a more public benefit? Well, it's, I guess. It, you know, unfortunately, it's not nearly as public as it as it possibly could be. We have the, including the VA, nobody knows how many how many families or how many senior veterans, surviving spouses, could be receiving this benefit right as of, uh, of this time, but, but what we do know is less than um, what is estimated as could be hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Uh, less than 5% are actually getting this benefit, and the reason is they've never heard of it before. I mean, it's, it's obviously, it, it, the trigger is when somebody obviously needs care, and, and, and then the care is paid for out of their own pocket. And when you think of it as something similar to uh, long-term care insurance, I mean, that's when somebody actually files the claim. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Lori, what happens is is nobody tells them. 
I mean, uh, and, and that's that's the whole impetus behind what we're trying to do now is get the message out to as many people as we possibly can. Those people that are working um, within the senior communities, the marketing directors, the sales directors, or the assisted living communities, or memory care communities, or home care, or whatever, uh, they deal with people every single day, seniors every day, that are requiring care and are, are paying for that care out of their own pocket. But what we also know is about 80% of the care that is being delivered uh, to these seniors is being delivered by family caregivers uh, at yep. home and totally unaware of it, absolutely have no idea um, that it even exists. But it's, the, the money is substantial. And, and let me just go through that just real briefly uh, with you. If you are a married veteran, if you meet all the eligibility requirements and you're paying for care out of your own pocket, if you are a married vel uh, veteran, you can receive up to $1,949 per month tax-free for the rest of your life. And that money goes directly to the claimant. It's not assigned to somebody else. It goes directly to the claimant. A single veteran can receive up to $1,644 a month for the rest of their life. And a surviving spouse could receive up to $1,056 a month. That money goes directly to the claimant. They can use it as they see fit. Um, it's a benefit that they've earned. Um, it's all tax-free, and and that's the way that it works. Um, uh, it, it's really a simple concept when you think of it in terms of insurance, but people just don't know. And that's what things like your your um, radio program, uh, uh, what you do, and, and so forth, and other people like ourselves, we're, we're trying to get that message out to as many people as we possibly can all the time because they just don't know that it exists. But families are, it is very, very expensive um, to provide care for your loved one. Um, and that is, as you probably know, that is the number one fear of seniors is that they're going to run out of money. Oh, definitely, definitely. And for some people, I mean, this, I mean, this could literally double some some people's income on what they're living. Oh, it it, it, it absolutely does. It it, it absolutely does. It, it, just as an example, and, and and this is something that I would see all the time. Um, assuming that somebody uh, there's a uh, a single veteran out there, and and they walk into a let's say an assisted living community, and and um, you know they're there, and they, you know the place is beautiful. They're all beautiful. They're wonderful. I mean, they're they just mm -hmm. incredible places. But they're also all private pay. And let's assume that this veteran walks in with their family, and everything is wonderful, and and uh, it's it's a place where where dad can be safe and, and secure, and the family loves it, and everybody thinks it's great. The problem is, is that dad's income. Uh, is only fifteen hundred dollars a month, you know, but the cost of the care there is three thousand dollars a month. And if you look at somebody uh, like this as an example, and maybe they have eighty thousand dollars in in savings somewhere, well, mm -hmm. the one thing you can one thing you can see right away is in just a little over four years, that person is going to be completely broke. And when that mm -hmm. happens. The burden of care is going to fall on the family members. Now, does everybody know that? 
everybody knows that. And as I always say, this is one of the things I just say over and over and over again because I found this to be true in the senior, when seniors are receiving care, regardless of where they're receiving care, it's always about the money. It's always mm-hmm. about the money. Um, and so in this instance, if this person was eligible for this benefit, was able to get this benefit, um, as a single veteran, they'd be able to get $1,644 uh, per month tax-free for the rest of their life. All of their costs would now be paid for, and that $80,000, what they had, which is their nest egg, would be able to remain intact um, for a while. And that's and that's the whole idea behind this, because it just... When, when families are confronted with the fact that they they need uh, th- that their loved one needs care, it's how are they going to pay for it? Um, and most of the time, most of the time, what happens is in about eighty percent of the of the circumstances, um, the the family members are caring for their senior um, in, in their own home, which is uh, preferable. Um, and they're providing the care free of charge um, because yeah. they have no other choice. And that's very, very, very true. So, you know, with this, um, I, I guess, can you explain, you know, how this works, and you know, what are the steps for someone to see if they qualify? What do they, what do they need? Because um, even if it's free, there's got to be a ton of paperwork that they've got to scrambled together. I can't imagine <laughs> that that's gone away. Well, well, we've we've tried to make the complex very simple, and I, I think we've done it that way. But you know, the, the requirements are are, and again, if you put this in the context of uh, insurance, um, mm-hmm. just like any other type of insurance, um, your your money is available when you actually file the claim. So first and foremost, it has to be a senior uh, that is now paying for their care out of their own pocket so they've incurred financial loss. It doesn't matter whether they're paying for their care, whether it's at assisted living, memory care, at home, whatever. But here, let me go through the, uh, there's really five five requirements, and, and that is, uh, we'll start out with the first one, that the, that the claimant has to be over the age of 65 or, okay. or completely and totally disabled. And we do all this on our website, and I'll go through that a little bit later on, but we, we, we've uh, gotten this to the point where it's very, very simple, so we just sorted out in yes or no questions. So over the age of 65, okay. uh, or completely you, and totally disabled. Yes, ma'am. Can you define completely and totally disabled? But that is a that would be a rating, if you will, that a physician uh, would assign to the claimant. Uh, it, it's okay. because all of this is, is predicated on a on medical necessity, and okay. uh, a doctor has to confirm this, um, and so that would be on a on a rating. Uh, and, and quite honestly, Lori, um, I think I have seen maybe two um, mm-hmm. throughout the time I've been doing this, maybe two that have been completely and totally disabled. But the average age of, of the the claimant that we're seeing is is seventy eight right now. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, over the okay. age of 65, or completely and totally disabled, um, the veteran needed to have served 90 days of active duty, needed to have received anything but 
a dishonorable discharge, and they needed to have served one day during a time of war or a period of war. Now, that doesn't need, mean that they needed to be in combat or overseas. It just needs, it, what it stipulates is that during one of those days of 90 days of active duty, that happened during a period of war. So let's say that the um, uh, the claimant was uh, an accountant, uh, for example, or worked in the accounting department or whatever with the, uh, with the United States Army in 1953 when they served, whatever. Um, if they had one day that was during the Korean conflict, they would they would qualify for that. So in other words. Now we we try to find out whether or not they're eligible and 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 uh, or whether or not they are insured, if you will. I, I use that word, uh, and I don't mean to be cavalier about the word, but it it works very similar to that. So now we find out whether or not they're insured. So over the age of sixty-five, mm-hmm. uh, ninety days of active duty, uh-huh. anything but a dishonorable discharge, and one day during a period of war. In those periods okay. of war, obviously World War Two the Korean conflict, uh, Vietnam, and now the Gulf uh, conflict. Okay. So I have a question, and, because I thought you said there were five things, and those were four, and you're not done. Okay, yeah, yeah, yep, I'm, getting, I'm getting to the fifth one. <laughs> okay. Yep, I'm getting, I'm getting to the fifth one here. And, you know, okay. and here's the issue. The fifth one is actually the most critical, and a lot of times people, when they hear the first four, they think, okay, where's the money? I meet all those eligibility requirements. So the fifth one is really the most crucial. The fifth one is, are they currently, are are they currently in need of care, as can be verified by a physician's report, which goes into all of this paperwork, just a couple of pages. Are they currently in need of care, and are they paying for that care out of their own pocket? Mm-hmm. For example, they're a resident at an assisted living community. They have to mm-hmm. verify that they're paying for care out of their own pocket. This is this is the analogy that that, uh, that I try to make sometimes. So if you think of this as a type of insurance, think of it this way: mm-hmm. you have auto insurance. We all have a, a auto insurance. We have an auto policy. So we know that we have an auto policy, uh, auto policy we're the insured, and, and so forth. So we would like to collect on this insurance. So we drive our car down to the collision center, and the claims agent comes out and says, okay, show me the damage. And you say, well, there isn't any. And he says, well, we can't pay the claim. You know, well, why not? I'm insured. And it, and it works mm-hmm. very much the same way. And if people think of it in that context, it makes a lot of sense uh, to them. Keep in mind that we hope that this is a wonderful, wonderful benefit. Uh, and again, it works just like long-term care insurance. But just like any other type of insurance, we hope that we never need it, that we never have yep. to use it. Exactly. Um, so, the, so the piece that most people... They they hear about this benefit, and then they they that fifth component. Okay, are you currently paying for care out of your own pocket? And a lot of times, 
the answer is no because the care is being provided by a non-dependent family member, a son, a daughter, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But they need the care because mom or dad, they need help with med management. They need help with um Maybe they don't drive. Maybe they need help with meal preparation. Um, all of these other things that, that a doctor would say that, you know, they really can't function completely on their own. Maybe they need help with their finances because there are cognitive issues. Well, everything works except the fact that the non-dependent family member that's providing the care isn't paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing can go into place and the claim can be submitted as long as that caregiver is paid. And that's all there is to it. Okay. Now, I think there might be a caller online that uh, wants to ask a question. I've got, I'm showing somebody with a 670 or 678 number. If you want to ask a question, I need you just to push one and um, then I'll know for sure that you want to ask a question. Sometimes people are just listening in that way too. Again, um, anyone who wants to ask David a question, you can call in live at 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And then push one. That kind of raises your hand on my little board here, and I know that you're out there. And I know we've got lots of people listening uh, via the Internet. So, again, if you have a question or a comment, please go ahead and, and uh, note that in the chat box, too, and I will I will bounce that off with people. So um, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt, but I just also want to make sure our listeners have that opportunity oh, to, um, to call in. Um, well, it's very interesting. So in order to be able to qualify for this, let's say they they qualify for the five things that, that are needed that you'd say right. that they're um, over 65 or completely disabled. Um, mm-hmm. They have been a veteran that served 90 days of active service. They have been discharged anything but dishonorable. And they've had, was it one day in wartime? Oh, one day during a time of war. Right. During the time one, of war. One okay. day that they served was happened during a period of war. During a period of war. Okay. And uh-huh. then the other one is that they are currently in need of care and that a doctor can verify that and that they're paying out of right. the pocket. So let's say right. they qualify exactly. In other for... words, that, that's what completes, yeah, Lori, that's what completes the claim because what the VA looks at, they look at everything as, okay, show us evidence. We want to see mm-hmm. evidence, and the mm-hmm. the first four components, the evidence is easily uh, uh, they can they can get that easily uh, from the veterans DD two fourteen stands for Department of Defense. That's their their actual discharge papers. So the first four components they can see, um, mm-hmm. and they can verify that they had the time during the war and so forth. What they also want to see is show us the evidence that the claimant is paying money out of their pocket, and you can verify that uh, to us for their own care. Okay. So now if they would start paying their family member for services Uh rendered, then that would be um, a way um, to, I guess, the burden basically on everybody. um, Absolutely, and I'm so glad you asked that question because that happens 
80% of the time. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, here's, and, and here's what people don't understand, is, is that it has to be a, uh, it has to be a non-dependent family member, so it takes the spouse out of the equation. And most of the time, the, the care for um, the, the seniors are, are, would be provided by a son, a daughter, you know, granddaughter, grandson, you know, sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. another, uh, it could even be a neighbor. It doesn't matter. What matters mm-hmm. to the VA is that the, that the claimant or the, the potential claimant here is paying, is must be paying money out of their own pocket for their own care. And they can okay. verify this. And the okay. question, this is this is the thing that always comes up, Lord. This always comes up. And, and when you explain this to people, they will say, let's just take an example. Um, you stop by your, your mother's house or apartment or whatever uh, four times a week, five times a week, seven times a week. It, it, it doesn't matter. But you mm-hmm. help uh, them with Maybe they need help with med management. Maybe they need help with meal preparation. Maybe they need help with all these other things and so forth. So you're providing the care. You're just not a paid caregiver. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people will say, "Well, I couldn't. I, I just simply couldn't accept money." You know. Uh, and and the answer to that is, if mom or dad pays you, they have satisfied the requirements of the VA in paying for their own care. I mean, look at it this way. What would they do if they had any other caregiver come to the home? They'd be paying them as well. Okay? What that person does with the money after being paid is their business. Uh Uh-huh. So generally speaking, what happens is that, you know, mom or dad pays the son or daughter. The son or daughter accepts the money, and then they, they end up paying, you know, bills for mom or dad or whatever the case may be, however they want to work it out through the family. But in the eyes of the VA, that's that's evidence, and they provided the fact that um, the care, and the caregiver, by the way, doesn't have to be licensed at all. Oh, oh so um, and that's a huge, that's a huge It's a huge factor. thing. It's it's a huge, uh, enormous thing, and it's, and, and the need for the care is verified by the doctor. So the doctor has, there's a little two-page um, physician's report, uh, and it's not, mm-hmm. a, it's not a complete physical exam at all. It's, it's, it's very short and to the point. But where a doctor, and generally speaking, it's the physician that's most familiar with the claimant, uh, fills out the report, and they have to sign it. And there's just questions on there. How does this person handle things at home? You know, how do they handle their finances? Can they be, um, uh, how far away from the home can they walk on their own? Uh, Do they need help with this, that, or the other? So the doctor verifies the need for the care, and how that care is delivered is totally up to that family, which it's, it's, they were way ahead of their time when they did this 60 years ago. It was unheard of. Just unheard of. Well, and it's it's so nice because you know most people say I don't want to leave my home, and I'm exactly. not saying that that's always the best decision for people because I do believe in you know getting proper care and peer support and interaction and and as good-hearted and intended as we may be as caregivers, sometimes I exactly. I don't always think that we're making necessarily the right choice. But many times that choice. Um, 
to take care of someone is because of the lack of funds. And exactly, even when exactly. you want to give care, it can cause so much um, upheaval in a family yes. structure in terms of working things in. And again, it doesn't have to be a family member. It could allow you to free yourself up a little bit and hire a home health care person sure. as well. Um, sure. Or a friend of the family's, or whatever it might be. So it it doesn't matter. It could be. It could be the next door neighbor. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that this was set up allows the maximum freedom. All the VA wants to see is that again, going back to that insurance analogy. Show us the evidence. Show us the evidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, the doctor's going to verify the fact that care is needed, um, mm-hmm. and. Who provides that care, it doesn't matter who provides that care as long as it's not a dependent family member. That's the only stipulation mm-hmm. that they have. No, It doesn't okay. matter whether it's licensed or, or not licensed. It, it doesn't matter. Um, and generally speaking, again, if you're looking at the, you know, spouses can provide a certain amount of care, but if you're looking at spouses that are, again, the average age about 78, um, sometimes the the son or daughter is providing care for both parents. Uh, yep. But you're absolutely right. Ninety percent, I think the stat is ninety percent of all of those seniors that are needing care prefer to receive the care in their own home. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to say something here, and I'll probably, I don't think I'm going to get hate mail for it or, or whatever. But it's, it was absolutely <laughs> true. And uh, um, you know, when I worked for uh, a senior communities, uh, assisted living communities, and, and uh, did some of the training for sales directors and worked with the executive directors. And I would see families every day that would walk through the front doors of whatever community that I was at. I've been to communities, you know, coast to coast, literally. And and this is an absolute truth. Um, I never saw, never saw a family walk in with their family. Uh, that was uh, a family member, their loved one there. I never saw them walk through that front door because they wanted to be there. They were there because they either needed to be there or they had to be there. It wasn't working out in their in their situation. And maybe they've got a son and maybe they live in Omaha, Nebraska, and they've got a son in uh, Massachusetts and a daughter in California and another daughter in Texas. And it, it's just not working, you know, or, or maybe they don't have somebody right there in, the, in their, own, their own hometown. But the senior communities, the assisted living communities, memory care communities, group homes, uh, skilled nursing, so they're all need-driven. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're not there because they want to be there. They're there because they need to be there and they have to be there. And it's just not working out for the family. And, and when that happens, somebody's, they're all private pay and mm-hmm. somebody's paying for it. Um, and so it, it's just, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a benefit. It, it, what a wonderful testament and, and, and what a wonderful benefit for those people that have served us, you know, uh, all these years and, and so forth that they can get that. And it helps tremendously for their for their family. And you're absolutely right. It's just uh, 80% of that care is being delivered by a family member. And, well, uh, and I think, 
One of the things that I think is so important, and I, I speak from personal experience. My mom, you know, had memory problems for 30 years, and she's now sure. in a nursing home. My dad had brain cancer. I mean, I was in I was in the crux of caregiving um, for many, many years. Plus, I was married, right. had kids, worked full time, did the volunteer thing, and you lose track of yourself and your relationships, even though you are caring for somebody, you're doing tasks, your relationship suffers because you just can't balance it all, or I couldn't. And I I think the majority of people are with me. And so with these funds, I mean, it can allow you to get back to the core of who you are and who who they are um, as an individual. And, And to me, that's the biggest gift. And so many times we forget, you know, we're so busy trying to save money or cut costs or, you know, do whatever um, that we forget about the relationship at hand. And, you know, most exactly. people who are, who are caring for a parent or, or even a friend, um, most people will admit, um, they'll say, where did everybody go? <laughs> Where's all the help, you know? Where's all the friends when you need them? Because they they don't step up to the plate. And part of it is, is we don't know how to ask for the help that we need because as a society, we kind of um, shun that. And, and you know, we, we judge people if they pull in help. You know, well, why can't you do that? You're the daughter. Right. That's your role. And, you know, people really have to look at big picture and everybody's life is different, but balance is critical. And we, we focus all the time on patient-centered care, which I think is, is very important, but we really have to talk about balanced care because if if I'm at my wit's end caring for an individual, the likelihood of something abusive happening, and it might be minor, you know, versus, um, you know, I I killed him or something like that or, you know, locked him in a closet. I mean, you hear all these goofy things or stole their money or, I mean, there's all different types of things, but people get pushed. And a lot of times things aren't intended but they happen, and, and abuse to me, in my definition, can just be verbal abuse, emotional abuse, you know, um, and that can be so damaging to a soul, and that person is Absolutely. trapped. And and so Absolutely. I think we really want to be able to avoid that and to be able to have balance and say that it's okay. Now, part of the hurdle, I would imagine, because we didn't, you know, I have to admit, we did not hire out any home health care. Um, looking, um, looking through the rear view mirror, I wish we would have in some factors um, because I think it would have also allowed my brothers to be able to breathe and release some of the guilt they had yes. for not yes. stepping up. And, and, you know, we have to look at big picture here of how these caring relationships evolve. And when you've got, you know, money to kind of be able to spread your wings a little bit and really decide what is best for the person. And what is best for the person isn't always what our egos think is best for the person because our egos protect ourselves and they're really not focused on the other guy. Um, So I think that, again, that that is very, very important um, to do. 
Now, if somebody is interested in finding out more regarding this whole process, um, what type of you know paperwork do they need? And I would imagine it's pretty detailed. And 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 okay. can you tell people, you know, are you licensed and bonded, and you know, are you trustworthy, David? You know, and I I did my due due diligence, but I want <laughs> David to kind of explain the hoops that he had to jump through because I said, you know, I can't have you on the show if I don't do my due diligence, and we right. just had a computer glitch, <laughs> but we 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 got around that, and so it all worked, but. If you can explain to people the hoops you had to go through with the VA to become a trusted individual, okay. to even be able it, to it, provide this. It's service. a great question, and 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 I'll 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 take that that latter question first, and then we'll go through about you know the process of people finding out more about this and finding out whether or not they can actually get the benefit. But in terms of um, when we our total organization is all web based. Um, and we wanted it that way because I I had seen enough of this uh, for years of doing this, but I wanted to make sure that if if there was a son or daughter in Charlotte, North Carolina, that wanted to find out about this and be able to to get this thing started at two o'clock in the morning, they could do it, and to make it mm-hmm. simple enough to where that they could do it and it was understandable. So. Um, in, in getting back to the first part about how do they find out about this, we set this whole website up to where if all they would do is go to our website, which is seniorvet.org, um, and there is a there is a large um, uh, video there that is a uh, uh, it's a, actually a, the, the video is is on YouTube and and it's uh, Brian Williams of NBC News explaining this exact benefit. It's often called the aid and attendance uh, benefit. And it takes two minutes and 46 seconds uh, to watch this video. And it explains everything. It's very well done. And if somebody believes that that fits for their loved one, then all they have to do is, is directly to the right of that of that play button on the video, we have a big button it's it's uh, blue red and, and gold and it says start here and they click on that and they'll go through the questions there's five questions uh, literally and then there's a, a couple more they're all answered yes or no and it'll just move them all the way through and it was designed this way and as they answer the questions we collect a little bit of data from the person from the contact information we ask the questions, and then it just moves them along, depending upon the answers to the questions. If they get through all of the questions, all of the forms necessary for the claimant are would be sent to that primary contact person versus an attachment, uh, and it's all compiled the way it's supposed to be. Now, they're either going to apply as a married veteran or a single veteran or a surviving spouse. So they get all of the necessary paperwork that they need. It's all, and, and they can complete it all. They can. Uh, we hope that they do it all online, so it's nice and neat. We tell mm-hmm. them what they have to do. Uh, we've got two pages of instructions. Plus, we have a video um, uh, instructions for this and how to fill out the forms. And they're really not that difficult. They're very redundant, but they're not difficult. And so they get all of the information that they need, and then it's sent to us um, to where I will look at it, I'll review the file, sign off on it, and then submit it to the VA. 
So it's really incumbent upon them to finish out um, the necessary paperwork um, for their particular loved ones. And it can all be done, you know, once they get started, it can all, they can have all of that ready to go. It takes about four minutes. That's it. Okay. Um, and with regards to us, checking us out and so forth, and I'm glad you asked that question because it's exceedingly important. Uh, first of all, it is required by federal law, again, under the statutes of uh, federal law, that anybody that, that works with a veteran with regards to the prose- uh, prosecution, presentation, and preparation of a claim must be accredited with the Department of Veterans Affairs. And what that involves is a, uh, they do a background check. Uh, it's, it's a fairly lengthy questionnaire, and then it involves a written test and then ongoing um, continuing ed credits through the Department of Veterans Affairs. And, and uh, we have that on our site now, too, to where you can, you can literally go uh, to the Office of General Counsel on their website, their official website, and find out anybody in the United States who is accredited. Um, mm-hmm. And they fall under three categories, either attorneys, claims agents, or veteran service officers. And you can, you can just type in their name and find out if they are. Um, the other issue, Lori, is that the forms that are filled out and that we see before we sign off on them and go to the VA contain incredibly sensitive, confidential information. We have all the information. We see on this the claimant's social security number, their address, their phone number, all of their liquid assets their bank account numbers, their routing numbers, uh, everything there is about them, all of their medical information. So you really want to make sure that whoever you're dealing with is legitimate um, and you're sending this to somebody that, number one, the number one thing is that they're accredited. So we show on our website, on our About Us page, every single document that we have, all our licenses, accreditations, and so forth, people can actually see it. uh, it, it's all done there, and, and uh, we've done it in a series of, of PowerPoints and, and so forth, so you can actually see the documentation and verify it because it's very, very confidential. And I look at things from always from the standpoint of if it was my mom or if it was my dad, I'd want to make sure that whoever I was sending this to, I want to know everything about them that I possibly can. I want to make sure they're legitimate, uh, I, I want to make sure that they have their licenses intact. I want to make sure it's a legitimate organization. Tim Zering and I joke sometime. I, I just saw him uh, a couple weeks ago, and and we we joke and we say, you know, we've got everything on there except our our college transcripts. <laughs> we each other, and we said, uh, okay, we're not going to do that. You know, especially not our undergrad transcripts because we had a good time in college. Our grad transcripts are pretty good, but not the undergrad transcripts. But <laughs> Um, but you want to make sure. I mean, you're you're dealing with, um, you know, what oftentimes, and, and I, I believe this to be true, probably the, one of the most vulnerable uh, segments or, or, or uh, of our society, you know, groups of our society, which are the seniors. And you have all of that confidential information uh, right in front of you because they have to disclose it to the VA. Um, sure. The VA sees it all. So what we've done is, you know, getting back to the whole idea behind the website 
is, you know, we, we make sure that the process is very, very simple. And by the way, all of the forms and so forth are not, are not sent um, and cannot be sent via the Internet at all. All of the forms must be filled out. We ask them to fill it out online. They're PDF forms. They're government forms. But they're mailed to us. And we get them, and then we verify that because we have to have the DD-214s and, and some other, uh, we may need a copy of the uh, death certificate for a surviving spouse or a copy of the marriage certificate as well for a married veteran or surviving spouse. So all of that is mailed to us, and then we sign off on it, and we send it in hard copy to uh, one of the three VA processing centers, depending upon which state it comes from. Uh, so we've we've really... We believe that we've made the process so simple. Um, and all we ask people to do, if they think that their loved one uh, may be eligible for this, is to go to the website, SeniorVet.org, watch the video. It's 2 minutes, 46 seconds. If that applies to your loved one, then immediately start the claim process, and you'll have it all there available for you to get it filled out, and then sent to us takes about four minutes. And the way that it was set up to Lori is if they if they answer, um, and I can tell you right off the bat, there's there's going to be the the initial five questions have to be answered as yes in order to go forward. If they answer any of those first five questions as a no, there's a screen that pops up and it says apparently based on your answer that the claimant is not eligible. And then we also have a short little video in there, a little video link to tell them why. But if they have any questions or if they think that they maybe they receive that in error, they can certainly email us um, and find out. But we've it, it's all very simply yes or no answers, and it just keeps moving you forward. Um, and um, everything else... You know, on that website, uh, we refer to our website as kind of a one-trick pony. I mean, people go to it one time, and they find out if they're eligible for it. They get all the necessary, um, they answer all the questions, get the necessary forms and so forth, and then um, then we deal with it after that. But, but the rest of it is just we've got a, a page on there for frequently asked questions and probably the most one of the most important pages is, is about us, you know, because we, uh, we're transparent as can be. Uh, everything about us. You know, who's our who's our general counsel? Uh, you know, what about our, uh, our papers we've submitted to the IRS for our 501c3 application? It's all on there, all on there, and and they can actually see it. We just don't tell you. We we show you. Okay. Now, <clears throat> you know, the government has not is not known for moving things quickly. So. Everybody uh, gets exactly. all the paperwork <laughs> to you, dots the I's, crosses the T's. What would be on average, and I know you don't have a crystal ball there, but you know, what's the expected turnaround time for review? Because you get the paperwork, you get all the hard documents, you review them, then you have to submit them. And then exactly. um, once they're reviewed, how long does it take to get a response, and then when would the benefit kick in? Does it go retro, and how far back? Yes, and great questions, great questions. Um, first of all, I always tell people to, you know, once, nothing can happen until we actually receive it. And, and quite honestly, Lori, this is, 
this is sometimes one of my great frustrations is that family members will will put this on a desk somewhere or somebody's going to get to it and it takes them a, you know, a couple weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever before they get around to it. We can't act on it until we actually get it ourselves because we've got to review it and sign off on it and then send it in. So once we send it in to the one of the processing centers with the VA, we always tell people to anticipate as little as three months as long as eight months. That's the bad news. The okay. good news is that it does go back retroactive to the time okay. to actually the, the you know if, if the if the VA in St. Paul received a claims package on the 20 let's say the 25th of November they would um, of this year uh the date the date goes in i mean it's the, the clock starts ticking on that and so uh when they make their final decision and make the award the award would go back retro to the 1st of December of this year okay. so we've had We've had cases where people have received a lot, I mean a lot of money initially, and then after that every month, that money is deposited electronically into the claimant's account, whatever account they designate. That's why I said we've got account numbers and routing numbers and so forth. So it goes in there just like Social Security. So I tell people, count on three months to eight months and just hope that it's um, for the better. Now, with that being said, the number one reason for a delay from the VA is an application that's not filled out properly. They're missing something. Um, okay. uh, somebody, there's a, there's a blank there, and there's a field there that somebody didn't fill it in. They didn't put a, a zero or a none or an NA or whatever. And I can proudly say, proudly say that that knowing that and the way we've devised our our structure on our website and so forth, that we will not submit a claim package into the VA unless it's absolutely perfect. And they have been perfect. A hundred percent of the time, they're perfect. Um, so we see it first, and then we, we notify somebody, you know, we're missing something here, or, you know, the, the claimant didn't sign here. There are, there are four reasons that the VA will expedite the claim. Um, one would be for severe financial hardship. I mean, this is, but it's got to be severe. Somebody's going to be evicted or, or whatever, I mean, and that usually doesn't take uh, place. Um, the other one would be homelessness. Uh, the other one would be uh, uh, AIDS, which is the most common. Mm-hmm. And and I'm blanking on one. I'm feeling like I'm having a Rick Perry moment here. So, um, uh, uh, but oh, the other one would be terminal illness. But okay. anybody that's over the age of eighty, their claims are expedited. So that's one of the first things that I look at is I look at the claim package, I look at the birthday, and on my cover letter to the VA when I send it in as an accredited VA claims agent, I'll say, you know, enclosed, please find a claim package for whoever it is. Uh, please expedite this claim based upon the, the claimant's attained age of whatever it is. 
mm-hmm. and those go through quicker. Um, okay. But the but the number one thing is is just is just accuracy. Um, and every conversation I've ever had with any of the individual adjudicators with the VA, I always ask them. Always ask them. Tell me what's what's the number one reason something sent back or delayed, and they'll always say the same thing: it's incomplete, or there's not okay. enough evidence. Um, and that's that's a big thing if there's not enough evidence. But we've compiled this and, and completed. We spent hundreds of hours putting this together. We've completed this claims package where it's uh, we literally there's there's no doubt. There is no doubt. In fact, in a lot of the, uh, or in fact, in all of the claim packages that the person uh, receives, a lot of this we've already filled out on behalf of the claimant um, because we know, uh, you know, the answers and so forth. So a lot of it's already done when they get it. It's just really up to them to, to finish it out, have the claimant sign it, get it back to us for review, and then we send it on in. But um, and that was, when I. Uh, one of the questions, uh, one of the things I always asked too, uh, when I was uh, working as a sales director, marketing director, where, you know, you'd have families come in and you'd find out that they were eligible for this benefit and that they could receive it. Uh, and I think it's a fair question, and I think it's the only question that you could ask the family is that if 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 mom or dad is going to be moving in here, and in order for the claim to be legitimate. There's got to be money going out of pocket. So if they move in, can you sustain them financially if it takes eight months before you get this money back? And it just it it always comes back and it comes back retro. But you're absolutely right. It just uh, uh, it can be very frustrating. So we try to we know how to get it in there, and we know you know we'll. We're shameless as, as to how we want to get it get it fast. Um, uh-huh. We also know what the, the roadblocks are. And honestly, Lori, one of the one of the toughest things that we deal with are families or family members that drag their heels on it. Um, mm-hmm. And there's nothing we can do until it gets into the VA. There's nothing we can do. Well, I appreciate all your time with us today, David. I'm waiting for uh, Mary Beth Watson to call in the line, and um, she'll be joining us here shortly. And it looks like we've got somebody on the line, and I'm not sure if it's a question for you or if it's her. Um, so let me just call. Let me just pull this person in. Well, that's fine. They are at a 903 number here. So I've got a 903 number on the line. Who am I speaking with? Hi, Lori. This is Mary Beth. Oh, hi, Mary Beth. Okay, I had you down for a different number, so you've been hanging out there a while. <laughs> let, let me let me put you on hold just a second because there's one other person that just uh, raised their hand here too. So just a sec, okay? Okay, we've got on the line a person from a 678 number. And who... Who is on with us now at a 678 number? Yes. My name is Deborah Rucker-Turner with the organization called Caregiver's Hope, and I have two questions. One has two parts and the other one just one. Um, is there a minimum amount that needs to be paid to the non-dependent family member? Great question. Absolutely great question. This is the way that it works. 
what the VA looks at is they let's say that that mom's income is um, uh, let's say a mom's income as an example is two thousand dollars a month. That's Social Security, whatever else she's going to get. Okay. Okay. If she pays, if she pays um, a uh, caregiver, uh, let's say uh, fifteen hundred dollars a month. Okay. The VA will see the additional five hundred dollars a month, and they will they will deduct that from her monthly benefit. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? It does. Okay, so okay. so what they're so in order so in order to get what the VA looks at is what is reasonable and what is customary, and you don't have to put down the number of hours, you don't have to put down the rate per hour or whatever, but but this is what we tell people if if you've got somebody you know if a reasonable and customary fee for somebody if they were coming to their home or whatever um, would be whatever that person's income is, let's say it's $2,000, and you pay that out, then the then the benefit that you will get will be the maximum amount. That okay. is usually the case with most seniors, that they're upside down. They're paying out more money for their care than they have coming in in terms of income, so it's never an issue. Um, but that, that's a great question. That is an absolute great question, and, and we kind of – and, and we – we can help with that too if it's, if care is being provided at home in terms of giving you some guidance as to what it needs to be, you know. Um, okay, great. Wonderful. Thanks for calling in, Deborah. Appreciate it very All much. Right. Uh, okay. And did you have a second part to your question too? I did. Deborah? Okay. I wanted Thank to know what ahead. documentation is me is needed for proof of payment. Is it just the canceled checks? Uh, I. Another great question. Uh, included in all of the packets uh, or the claim package that you get is a um, uh, there's a little form and it's called a care expense statement. And all okay. it is is it, it's a, a statement where the care giver or the care provider signs off on it, the claimant signs off on it, and at the bottom it says, "I am paying this person or this organization X number of dollars." Per month, and that will suffice. Okay, but I would recommend to people that they do keep canceled checks, receipts, or anything else because uh, if you're ever audited uh, on that or whatever, and every year, every year the VA sends out what's called a, um, an eligibility verification report, okay. and it panics people. It just absolutely panics them because what the VA says is okay. This is what we have on record as you paying out for care. Is this correct or not correct? You know, and it's, it, they're not asking for receipts or whatever. They're just saying that this is what the record, uh, what the record is. If you were ever audited, you would want to make sure that you had as much documentation as you can. Um, again, it doesn't have to be real extensive. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, the number of hours or whatever. It just needs to be something that you can verify to them because because, unfortunately, I've only seen this happen twice. But when it did, it was devastating. What happened is is that people stated that they were paying out so much money per month for care for their loved one. And they were a, a family, 
uh, caregiver. Okay. But they couldn't. But they couldn't document it. So what happens is, when the VA finds out about that, they kind of treat it just kind of like the IRS does with a, a deduction that you can't take. They cancel the benefit, and then they go after the money that's been paid out. Um, it's it's not as severe as the IRS, but I just just to protect yourself that you know really cancel checks or receipts or whatever. But there's just that's all they want to see is that, yep, this is the evidence they're paying it out. Um, and again, it doesn't need to be detailed in terms of number of hours or what the actual care was or whatever. That's that's it. So. And I have one very quick question: Can a spouse yes, receive benefits if they're married but but separated? Uh, I had a, a, someone call me the other day, and his parents are still married. Uh, father served during the Korean War, but the parents are separated. Can that spouse receive benefits? If the spouse is needing, if the veteran, yes. Uh, okay. The issue of uh, being separated, yes. If they're divorced, no. Okay. And, but okay. the benefits would only be for the vet and not for the spouse, correct? Well, it, it, it depends who is, who is um, you're exactly right. It's always predicated on the veteran. The veteran is still living, I assume? Yes. Okay. So in other words, what would happen is even if the spouse now is needing the care, the benefits have to go through via the veteran. Okay. Okay. Now, if something happens to the veteran, let's hope it doesn't, but if it does, if the veteran passes away, then that spouse, if they're requiring care, could receive benefits as a surviving spouse. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Your information was great. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Beneficial. Thank you, and thanks, Deborah, for calling in with your, your questions. David, how do people get a hold of you? Can you uh, give them a couple of contact information? Uh, yes, we do everything. For you? Absolutely, absolutely. We do everything via email. And I, when we set this stuff, uh, uh, you know, a lot, we've been criticized heavily for doing it all by email because we don't, uh, we don't have a toll-free number or whatever, and, and there's a particular reason for that. And, and the reason is is because it leaves a paper trail, and, and uh, we've tried to make it so simple. Um, our thought was if we have to be on the phone with people to explain this, then we're doing something wrong. Uh, so the best way to, for, to reach us would be seniorvetllc at gmail.com. Um, and, and really, the main uh, uh, yeah, senior vet LLC at gmail dot com. And the easiest thing to remember is just our website, seniorvet.org. And if you go there, we've got all of our contact information there as well. It's the same email address, obviously. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, so- you know, joining us today. You're very, very welcome, and and we just hope that we can get the word out to all of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of seniors and surviving spouses and families, and so on. This is a, it's a benefit. It's a, it's an absolute free benefit. Costs you nothing to find out. Go to seniorvet.org, watch the video if it works. See if you can't get that for your loved one, and that's that's the whole idea behind all of this. So. Well, great. Well, thanks again for joining us. I want to introduce you. Very welcome, Mary. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for all you do. Well, thanks. 
Um, next, I'm going to introduce Mary Beth Watson. Uh, Mary Beth has been on our show before, and uh, she lives in Dallas, Texas, with her husband Dale, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's in February of 2000. Um, once Dale was diagnosed, Mary Beth suspended working just to share the good days with Dale, and um, I, I just love the way you know that she did that because she she really is such a positive. Um, smart. You're just a brilliant woman, uh, Mary Beth. I, I love working with you and um, engaging with you because you have such a great spirit in terms of how you're dealing um, with this turn of events in life. And, you know, I would imagine that you have some some definite opinions and some some guidance you're going to be able to give others in terms of looking at long-term care strategies in this uh, second life planning because it's uh, it's a critical piece in terms of care. So, um, Mary Beth, can you tell us a, a, a little bit um, why you felt it was important to talk about this today in terms of long-term planning? Uh, thanks, Lori. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, a couple of things. In early, actually, my husband was diagnosed in February of 2007. In early in 2000, he uh, I, I had made the decision to look into long-term care insurance, and the reason that I did that is because we lived in the country and had horses, and I was watching my husband ride, and a horse stood up, flipped over backwards, and I thought the horse was going to land on him, but he, but it didn't. Uh, he rolled out of the way, and everything was fine. But in that instant, it occurred to me that if he were to be injured and not die, we could lose everything we own. So from my perspective, we were healthy, we were active, uh, we had worked hard to build what we had accomplished in life, and I could see that we could lose that, and, and either one of us could be left impoverished taking care of the other one. So I looked at long-term care insurance as insuring the assets, insuring what we had acquired, so that we would, so so that if something were to happen, one of us could go forward. And so it was a very logical decision for me, and I never thought about it again. I paid my premiums when they were due and went on down the road. When, oh, probably sometime in 2005 or 2006, I began to notice things that that seemed strange to me. And it took me until 2007 to get him to a doctor to have a diagnosis. Diagnosis didn't really change anything for us, but I have to say that on that drive home, I remember thinking to myself, I'm so grateful I have long-term care insurance. I don't know where it's going to fit into my plans and my needs going forward, but I'm so grateful that I have it. But I also thought, how was I so smart? <laughs> because I didn't know I was going to need it, and it, is, and it was costly. And, and so I started thinking, how did I make that decision? What caused me to make that decision? I started talking with some people who sell long-term who sell insurance, insurance agents, and they said long-term care insurance is the hardest insurance to sell. People don't understand it or they think it doesn't apply to them, and you spend a lot of time in education. And then people don't don't make a purchasing decision. And so I started to think, well, why is that and how can I make the, take my experience and make it real for people so that they understand the risk and if they're in a position to cover that risk 
they can do so. And the lo- and the younger they are when they make that decision, the more cost-effective that it is. So I started thinking about how do I educate, how do I create a call to action, how do I help people understand that the risk is real. So that's the what the road I've been walking down here the last year is gathering that information and and uh, talking to people and helping them at least consider an option of coming up with a plan. Well, and I you know, I like that you stumbled on this before a crisis really hit. I mean, a, a potential crisis, you know, triggered it for you that that what if moment. Um and you took it seriously. And I think so many of us don't um take those types of moments seriously. Um, and they can have huge consequences for us um, if we ignore them. Because we've all had, I think, moments in our lives at one time or another where we, you know, we, we just haven't paid attention to our gut or a sign before us, kind of that, that brighter picture. And I think it's really easy to ignore the fact that, um, you know, things could change in the future. Um, and just because we're healthy wealthy and wise today, that doesn't mean we're going to be tomorrow. So I I, um, I applaud you for that, and I, I applaud you for coming on the show and just kind of sharing your journey with us in terms of thought process. I know I've, you know, myself have gone down the road of long-term insurance and uh, disability insurance because I've been self-employed forever. And, you know, you just don't have those backup systems in place unless you put them there. And there's so many new alternatives out there. Um, I, I think it's very, very important. It's kind of like even with the powers of attorney and the healthcare do- directives, you know, the, all those pieces, you know, people are so fearful of things changing. Um, but it really is to give you control and to help you in the process in case something happens, you know, with the process. Um what you know, as far as as your um, overview in terms of talking with uh, various uh, insurance carriers and stuff, what did you find in terms of that was helpful for you in terms of evaluating what is it I want to do? What um, what became apparent to you maybe between one vendor and another? Was there some stark differences at all that you saw? Well, there's a couple things um, that come into play that we probably should talk about before we get there. Um, So one of the things that I like to think about are what are the things that we should be thinking about before there's a crisis? Mm -hmm. A couple of things come to my mind. Um, I was looking at some statistics that said 70% of people over the age of 65 will will have some period of long-term care in their lifetime. That's a pretty strong statistic. But what I found more interesting is that 40% of the claims for under long-term care insurance are for people between the ages of 40 and 65. And that was surprising to me. Um, and that goes back to things happen that we can't plan for. And the whole purpose of insurance is to ensure the risk that you can't sleep with. And, yep. you know, the risk that, that you're not comfortable with, you insure that and then you move forward. Um, one of the things that uh, that I'm very that I'm hearing people tell me in our conversations is that they don't know where to start, and I, I always tell them, well, start with 
putting yourself in the position of the person needing care and and how do you want to be cared for and then i I've learned to tell people to be very careful about the promises you ask people to keep. So I was talking recently to a gentleman who said he had a long-term care plan. He told his kids never to put him in a nursing home. And I think he has no idea what he's the burden he's just placed on his children. And somehow I need to help him understand that burden. And because of the people that I've met... I understand uh, parents taking care of children, while taking care of them can certainly have um, positive moments and can also be a gift, but the economic burden of doing so, the disruption in their life of doing so. And and so by not having a plan or by the plan being my kids will do it, my daughters will do it, that's not a plan. And I, you need to think long and hard about the burden you've just placed on them. It still comes down to, so how are you going to pay for it? Do you expect them to pay for it? Do you expect your daughter to shower you and to change your diapers? Is that the way you want your end-of-life relationship to be with your children? So I I caution people to be careful about the promises they ask their family to keep. I think you have a story about this as well. Yeah, I, I love the questions you pose because people don't think about, you know, changing diapers and, you know, all of the the intimate details that it takes um, to care for somebody or if it's even, you know, taking care of finances and and legalities and somebody's not comfortable with that to, you know, doing their grooming um, or doing the shopping or the medical. Everybody has a different comfort level in different situations. And I think it is so important to, you know, when we're asking people to take care of us to realize do we want our relationships to really change in terms of the focus, in terms of the core? Do we want them to go to just being a task? Because sometimes I think that's what happens, and, and you might disagree with that, but I, you know, I, I, I see it a lot where people are just so busy checking things off their to-do list that they're really not having a heartfelt conversation anymore or just sitting in quiet together, enjoying a moment. And I, I think those are the things that people miss or, or the laughter that is shared because people are overburdened and stressed out and, you know, they don't feel it's appropriate to laugh. Uh, I remember one time we took my mom <clears throat> up to the lake, for example, and she fell going in the front door and my mom was laughing and um, she wasn't hurt. Um, but she couldn't get up because she doesn't, you know, to tell her to bend her knee, she doesn't know how to do that and stuff. And so she's laughing, I'm laughing, my daughter's laughing, and my husband, he was just angry because it wasn't funny because he, he's like, we have to fix this, we have to, you know, this. And it's just like, you know what, it is okay to laugh. It is okay to still have a relationship. If if I slipped and I fell, you'd all be laughing at me. And don't take that that humor and that core of a relationship away because you have a task to do in terms of caring for somebody. Um, I I think that that's a a real critical mistake. So I think it's good to have people think about those questions. And even if they're comfortable having their daughter or son shower them or change a diaper, you know, that's a two-sided coin. Is the other person going to be comfortable? You know, so to have that conversation 
is is very critical. And and people always say, "Don't put me in a nursing home when they're healthy." And right, right. And, they, and there's an assumption that they're going to be the same sweet, lovable person that they are now. And and odds are they will not be that that sweet, lovable person. And what you want to protect is the the parent-child relationship or the spouse spouse relationship. Uh, through through the end of the progression of whatever it is you're caring for. There are more care options available now. At, at one time, long-term care planning really meant about whether or not we had the money, there are the reserves for a nursing home. And very few, we see less and less long-term stays in nursing homes and more long-term being provided through different means. Um, one, for example, is adult daycare facilities. If, you ha- if you're if you caring for someone and you have a day job, you're dropping that person off and picking them up, uh, just as you would a child. Uh, but more common now are community-based services. And the community-based services would be those people who come into your home to provide non-medical care or what we call custodial care. So I think that's where we there, – there's just so many different steps or – um, grades of care that need to be provided through the stages of decline. And probably the longest period is the community-based services, and that's that person that serves as the caregiver, the person who does lunch, assists with baths, um, that takes help that people do with what they call the activities of daily living. And 73% of uh, long-term care services provided today are provided through community-based services, not through nursing homes. And in ideal situation, if you are caring with someone and you know the and you are going to be cared for at home, you don't want the burden of care necessarily to fall on a person or a family. You can use these ex, these external services to um, augment the family and provide that support. Uh, after community-based services, there's assisted living. We're seeing more and more assisted living options, and they're primarily for healthy people, um, people that need to be kept in an environment that is safe. Um, a lot of the assisted living facilities look more like homes than institutions, and there's a people, the people have a great deal of autonomy and, and have the ability to live their, their uh, life the best that they're able. But ideally, we all want to stay home and so I, I say when you're when you need to start a conversation in your family and with your parents, and it needs to be that conversation that said, should we go down this road? What should that look like? What should that experience be for you? Um, what's good care? Um, good care could mean something different to to any anyone. One of the things that I've started recently that's been very interesting is I've been talking with caregivers because now that they've had this experience and they've lived it. I ask them, how does it change your perception of what you want for care? And what? And of course, they all say, "Well, I tell my children not to take on the burden. You know, it's fine to let others care for me." But I take it a little further than that, a lot further than that. I ask them to consider getting a pad of paper and start putting thoughts together for yourself. For example, I love to watch the sun come up in the morning. It's my favorite time of day if I could sit in the chair and watch the sun come up. That's a good thing. Don't touch my feet. You can rub my back. You can rub my arms. You can tickle me, You, but don't touch my feet. So it might sound silly, but these are the basic fundamental things about me that nobody's going to know, but when it comes down to the basic fundamentals of my care, it's important. 
I love my dogs. Can I be around dogs? Any dog doesn't have to be my dogs. Um, those types are things that I put on a pad of paper that says these are the fundamental elements of my core that need to be nurtured and cared for. Do you care for music? Do you love oatmeal? Do you hate oatmeal? Um, sounds really trivial, but you know what? Taking that pad of paper and writing those things down starts to get your mind thinking about how do I want to be cared for. So I think it's a good exercise. I think it's an excellent exercise. And um, I don't know if you have put anything together for people, but I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people would even pay to get a kind of a guided book in terms of what's important because, you know, what this disease has taught me is that it is the little things that matter. It's not the big stuff I used to chase and used to think was important. It is you know, the the moon at night, the sun in the morning, um, the breeze on my face, um, you know, my dog giving me a kiss, you know, or howling to go outside or to play. I mean, it, it's, it's very little things that fill my soul and make me content. And, and I think it's those little things that so many of us take for granted and overlook until they're gone. And, and so what no. happens is the the quality of care that you can provide to a loved one is based upon your knowing those things. Definitely. And if we don't ask the questions, we're not going to know. Because a lot of people, I mean, even I would imagine there, there could be people even in your own family that know you really well that still have not picked up on those cues of what's important to you. Because not everybody sees those things. Not everybody pays attention to them. So I will not promise you that I will not put you in a nursing home, but I will promise you that I won't make you eat oatmeal and I won't let anybody touch your feet. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it makes me laugh, but <laughs> but that's really that's really the nature of the promises we need to keep to each other with regards to how we care for each other. Well, but I mean, as as silly as it might sound is it's specific. It's not a generality. It's it's a it's a specific tangible. Not putting someone in a nursing home, I mean, you know, it's just not. Things change. I mean, I never thought my dad would end up in a nursing home, let alone my mom. Not in a zillion, zillion years. But, you know, dad took a tumble down the steps and you know, wasn't able to live independently anymore. And my mom was in her mid-stages of the disease, was always going to come live with us. And, you know, she decided um, one day, and this was uh, kind of a slap in the face to me, but she decided one morning that she wanted to live with Dad. And I'm like, but that's not the plan. And we had some of these conversations, but we didn't dig deep enough. And she said, We've been together 49 and a half years, and I'm not leaving him now. And how did we have these massive discussions, talk with elder planners and financial planners and the whole nine yards, and not talk about what fills her soul? We didn't have that conversation. Yeah, it's a very intimate conversation. It's an it's extremely important conversation to have, and people have to come out of their shells and be willing to talk openly that things could change in the future. 
and let's just be prepared so it's less stressful for everyone. I mean, even, you know, we went down the the portion of pre-planning for funerals, and, you know, my brothers really didn't want to have anything to do with that. You can handle that. And, And my mom and dad really didn't want to either, and I said, you know, we need to have this talk because I don't know how you even want to be buried. Do you want to be cremated and sprinkled up at the lake? I mean, you know, what do you want? How do you want your celebration to be? Do you have favorite music? What's important to you? And, you know, once they realized it wasn't scary anymore, that it was really about control and it really was about giving giving it back to them so that we could be respectful on as many levels as possible, then it was it wasn't a difficult conversation. Then they really just kind of chimed in, you know, because, you know, we don't know when any of us are going. You know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we have to stop thinking that if we think about this or if we investigate this or if we put some time into dealing with it that, you know, we're going to get hit by a bus tomorrow. That's just not the way it works. It's just smart business and it's good, healthy living, I think. And, provide, and it's respectful to all parties involved. And so having these critical conversations and these asking these important questions I think is very, very important um, to be able to do. Um, so I, I thank you so much for bringing them up. Now, when, one of the things that we wanted to talk about too was kind of the cost of caring, and you kind of went over some of the caring options and stuff, but as far as where money comes from and how does it get there and who's in control, what are what are some thoughts you have circling the money issues? Well, when we talk about the promises we keep, the best promise we can keep is that we will provide you the the best care possible for your needs at the time that you need it. And that's always going to come back down to the issue of money. And what I find really heartbreaking is when you have a caregiver who took on the task not knowing it was going to be five years or more of their life and they're losing their um, economic security in the process of of uh, being that caregiver. So the when you're talking about that care, you have to be able to talk about how are we going to pay for that care. And the options vary depending upon, again, whether you're using community-based services or a nursing facility. But you're looking at anywhere from 3000 to six, $6,000 to $7,000 a month, depending on the level of care and where you are in, in the country. Uh, for, and that would be for community-based assisted living or nursing care. When you have someone come in the home, it, particularly if you're coming if they're coming in through an agency, which I would recommend because of the background test and uh, screening and such that is done by the agency, you're going to be looking at fifteen to twenty dollars an hour for that care, uh, and that adds up. So if you only have somebody once a week or a couple of days a week to provide uh, relief for a family caregiver. You've got some costs there, and you'll figure out how to handle that. But the the cost options, I think there's just a tremendous misunderstanding that people have about Medicare and Medicaid, and there's this idea that Medicare will pay for it. 
or Medicaid will pay for it. There's also the idea that I've paid into this through my payroll deductions all these years. I'm entitled to get that money back out. And I think that until you start looking, until you have a need, you don't fully understand Medicaid and Medicare and what they do. So for starters, if you look at Medicare, uh, Medicare has pay, has very limit is very limited in what it will pay for. It does pay for medically necessary skilled nursing, either at a facility or through a home health aid, but it does not pay for custodial care. And there's a lot of rules involved about when it will pay and when it will not pay. So a per- for a person to receive long-term care from Medicare, they have to have been a hospital patient for at least three days. They have to be discharged with the directive from a doctor that they need skilled care going forward. They have to start that skilled care at least 30 days after they're discharged from the hospital. And Medicare will pay for all the expenses for the first 20 days. Then they pay for um, a certain amount of the expenses, expenses minus the deductible, up to day 100. And after day 100, Medicare pays for nothing. And that's the important thing that people don't seem to understand. Medicare does not pay for long-term care beyond 100 days. So then you're looking at Medicaid. There's and, and most people don't understand the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. And I say that because until I looked into it, I didn't either. It's just one of those M's. Um, mm-hmm. Medicaid Medicaid is is funded by. Uh, by general tax revenues. It's not Social Security, and it's not, you don't pay for Medicaid with your Social Security taxes. It's a partnership between the states and the federal government. The federal government lets the states uh, provide these services or helps fund the cost of these services provided by the state. And Medicaid was intended as a safety net for people who don't have assets, do, do not have the wherewithal to pay for their own care. And it was intended as a safety net, and it should be used as a safety net. Well, to make sure that only qualified people receive long-term care paid for by Medicaid, they they get into your private business. So they start looking at your assets, um, the history of your assets, how long you've had them, if you've given assets away. And you have to be down to a very limited um uh, collection of assets. So, for example, if you're a married person and you have a spouse that needs long-term care, you can keep your house and your car, but they will look at your income and any other assets you have and consider those assets as being available to pay for long-term care. And so if if your person is in a care facility, you will uh, spend down those assets before uh, before Medicaid will kick in and begin to pay. And so that becomes the issue for the surviving spouse because what you don't want to have happen is for the surviving spouse to come through this and be impoverished on the other side. And I've seen that happen um, way too often. Um, And it doesn't have to happen if there's some planning, and that planning, again, is looking at um, where those assets are. And um, and this is what I call a kitchen table talk on long-term care insurance it can get very complex and detailed, and I I don't want to go there because a lot of the laws are different from state to state. But it's important that you understand that Medicare is not going to pay for long-term care. 
I'm, I'm sorry, Medicare will not pay for long-term care, and Medicaid will pay for care for those who have no other means to pay for it. So with that in mind, I think that um, you have to start looking at uh, what, the insurance and the cost of insurance, and why do people not buy long-term care insurance. I started. I follow a lot of discussion boards online, and I can't tell you how many times I see terrible things about long-term care insurance, about how my parents paid for it for years, and when they filed a claim, it was it was denied. Um, things of that sort. And, of course, when I see that statement, there's something there that there, I have a, lots of questions. Like, I'd like to see the policy. How could this happen? What was not understood? Um, because there's, I'm sure there are cases or there have been cases of, uh, of I don't want to say fraud. There's, there's probably been cases where premiums were paid, benefits were not Provided, but normally it's because something was not understood, either when the policy was purchased or when the claim was processed. And I wish I could help them because there's something here that doesn't make sense. So what I find is, you know, for starters, most people don't want lawyers or insurance people in their life. I don't know why that is. If you look at your lawyers and your insurance people as being people possessing special knowledge, you should have them in your life when you have the need for the special knowledge. So when I look at long-term care insurance, you had asked me uh, early on what was the difference between, say, policies or between providers. When I went to look for insurance, I wanted somebody who specialized in it. Anybody who sells insurance can say, oh, yeah, I can get you long-term care insurance. But there's a lot of pieces to it, and you want to make sure you've got the right plan for what you see as your needs. And I went to someone who only did long-term care insurance. And I and he provided me oh a table that showed me maybe a half dozen different options with different carriers. The prices were all about the same and all more than I thought I wanted to pay. Um but I but he was also there to educate me. And so I would say if you want to have a discussion with someone about long term care and how it works and can I afford it I would look, if you've got a great relationship with a person who has sold you life insurance and disability insurance, by all means, have a conversation with them. But if you don't have that relationship with an insurance person, I would find somebody who specializes in that. I was looking at designations. There's different um, special or different different insurance specialties, and people take tests and study in order to have these designations associated with their name. You have to be really careful with these because some of these really are a matter of if you pay a, a premium, they allow you to use the designation, which means it's meaningless. You can go to a site and they'll list all the people that have this designation, but it doesn't mean anything other than that they paid their dues to have the designation. So I would be cautious about that. There is a designation that's called a, a CLTC that designation has a little teeth to it, um, meaning that there's coursework that has to be done and a test that has to be passed in order to have that designation. So if you're looking for some kind of good housekeeping stamp of approval, that's probably that's probably the best that I've found um, is the CLTC designation. Um, but I think the big thing is, probably the most important thing is, to talk to someone that you feel comfortable having a kitchen table conversation with. Meaning, 
there shouldn't be any jargon in the conversation. You should understand what they're telling you. If you don't understand, you should be comfortable asking questions until you do understand. And never stop asking questions until you say, I've got it. I understand. And then you're down to making a decision about cost. This is what I want for benefits. This is how I want benefits to be paid out should I need them. And this is what it's going to cost me to have those benefits. I would also ask you, before you or early on in your discussion about long-term care insurance, get clear in your mind, why do I want this? And come up with a statement. And the statement may be, like for me, the statement was, if one of us is injured or requires long-term care, I don't want the other to lose everything we've worked so hard to put together. That was my statement of ownership. The reason I say that is when you buy a, a policy, a life insurance policy or a long-term care policy, when you have that policy in hand, write your statement on the front of that policy and date it. Why did I buy this? Because you could be unemployed or economically strapped or be looking for ways to save money, and you could think, I'm going to cancel that long-term care policy. I'm saying pull that out of the drawer and look at your statement and say, is that statement still true? If that statement is still true, find something else to cut, but don't cancel your insurance policies. I love Um, that idea. Because I think yeah, under, so understand times, why. Yeah, I, I, and and when someone's feeling stressed budget wise, it's easy to say, "Well, I've never used it," you know, <laughs> and book right. it out of there. But I I love that idea. I think that's I think that's brilliant. Thank you. That's wonderful, Nugget. So go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just couldn't control myself. You know me. That's <laughs> okay. So I'm just saying, uh, if, you, if you talk to somebody about long-term care on the phone, if they talk too much and don't listen, if they don't ask questions about you, call somebody else. And and also um, ask for referrals. If you know somebody through your church who knows who's had an experience with uh, long-term care, um, ask them who they used and give that person a call. There's nothing better than a referral. So what I hear when people are complaining about long-term care is it's costly and I also hear that the rates go up. And so you buy into it, and then when you're in your 70s and you need it, the premiums go higher and higher and higher and higher, and you can't afford it, and you cancel before you need it. So a couple of things, you want to make sure that your long-term care insurance comes from uh, an insurance company that's been in that business for a while, not somebody who's new to the business. Just a general discussion about insurance and how it works is, you gather a, a, a group of people together and you say, let's all pool our money so that if one of us needs it, we'll, be, we'll all be happy to, to pay for those costs for that other person. And if you think about it, um, you've got to, you'd like to assume that all of you are healthy and all of you have an equal probability of needing the coverage, and that's why you're willing to sit at the table and write your checks every month. Um, and so that brings up the next issue that I hear about long-term care insurance when I read the boards. I'll see my husband was just diagnosed with long, long or with a, a dementia and we've applied for long-term care and we can't get it. How dare they? Well, if you think about it, if you're all sitting at the table saying, let's pool our money, if somebody needs help, we'll pay for it, you're not going to ask somebody who already needs help to sit at the table. So you have to have your coverage in place when you don't need the coverage. You can't need it. It's like your car insurance. You can't have an accident and then call State Farm and say, I think I need a policy. 
So that's uh, one of the other things I see all the time. You can't get the insurance when you need it. You have to get it when you don't need it because it's part of your planning. So you have to keep that in mind. There were some changes in the tax laws that happened in 2009 that have resulted in a whole new family of, of insurance products coming out there. And these insurance products now are what they call asset-based. And really what that means is they allow you to pay a really large upfront sum of money into a policy. You pay one time. And that policy then provides you both long-term care insurance benefits but also in a life insurance policy that will pay a death benefit. So if you never need the long-term care, you get your money back in, uh, or your heirs get the money back upon your death. So your investment is never lost. The other thing about these policy that, policies that's making them very attractive is that they have offer a return of premium, which means if you are five years down the road and you say, I've got enough assets now to where I don't believe I'm going to need long-term care, you can request a return of premium and they'll cancel your policy, but they'll give you your money back. So you've had no risk. You've taken no risk. You've tied up your money in this protection mechanism, but if you decide you don't want it anymore, you get your money back. If you keep it enforced and you need long-term care, you'll get it. If you don't need long-term care and you die, the money goes to your heirs. So they've taken the the um, the reasons not to buy long-term care out of the equation. Wow. That's that's a great to know um, because, it, it, you know, it is a balance and it is a struggle. Nobody likes to pay for something that they're not going to need. But, you know, like you said, you can't – this isn't something you can make up afterwards. You're, you're either going to be in place with it and in sync and, and have it set up or you're not going to qualify and it's just going to be too late. So – it's critical to have these conversations, to do the investigation, to, if nothing else, just get educated so that it, maybe you decide today is not a good time, but but maybe tomorrow will be for you um, or your situation changes. It might be something where you can't afford it today, but you even want to stick it kind of on a bucket list, a priority list for you because, uh, you know, maybe someone's without a job right now um, due to economic times and, but they they don't want to forget and let this slip because it's an easy thing to let slide. You know, planning for our future is something that can easily be forgotten about because we get so busy in the mucky muck of of everyday life. So um, I think that that's very important. Um, With the designations you mentioned, one other designation, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, is called the Certified Senior Advisor. And that is a, a designation. I actually have that. It's it's like a three-day course, um, but it's all really about getting to understand how to communicate uh, to seniors, educating them on all different types of facets so that they're more well-rounded. And there are people from long-term insurance, financial planners, accountants, real estate agents, home health care. I mean, anybody who works with that market can be part um, of that group, you know, if they go through and take the course and pass the test and pay their dues and things. But I have just found that that group typically is um, not only knowledgeable but compassionate, and they understand Mm -hmm. the importance of this table talk type conversation to have and to remove the lingo and speak the same language and really get to the heart of, of what the needs are and so I just wanted to to throw that out as well. And That's a good one, particularly that. 
particularly if you want um, a, a, an informed third party to sit at a sit in, at the kitchen table with yourself and a parent. That mm-hmm. uh, that that's a good skill set to have. I think the challenge that I look at is how do you get younger, healthy people people who have who are in their earning years to make a decision about a long-term care plan because that's the last thing on their mind is needing long-term care. And that's when they can afford it. That's when the premiums will be the lowest. Um, I mean, that, and then you're not looking at a senior person making the decision. Most uh, long-term care insurance is bought at age uh, 60, and I'd like to see long-term care insurance bought at age 45 to 50. That's when the premiums mm-hmm. are better. And, you know, like I said, in my case, it, it saved my life. It saved my economic yeah. life. That I did it yeah. young when I could afford it, and um, I think that the other thing I think that helps people, you know, we're talking about thinking about what you need it for care. You know, the "Don't touch my feet" and "Do feed me oatmeal" conversation. Um, you start looking at if if you can imagine this. Let's say that your uh, family member or or a spouse, if all of a sudden is no longer able to work but also needs care. And start asking yourself, where will the money come from? And there is a, a logical order f- for for where money comes from. One would be from savings. Um, some people have that. So money comes out of savings first. And then where would your money come from next? You might take it out of um, your home equity. If you have equity in your home, a home equity loan might get you some cash to help you, and I'm looking at cash just to pay bills and maintain a reasonable lifestyle um, as as this care is being delivered. So you still got your what home, you but of, you take it. Uh, pardon? Uh, what do you think of reverse mortgages in terms of um, in a long-term plan? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually think they're great. Um, with reverse for people who don't know with the reverse mortgage the person has to be the homeowner has to be 62 years of age or older and it works rather than like they they call them a reverse mortgage and a traditional mortgage is sometimes called a forward mortgage you know what a mortgage is and that you're paying down your principal with the uh, intention of someday owning your home outright well with the reverse mortgage you continue to own your home but the lender looks at your age and makes an assumption for how long you can live, so similarly to how they would do a life insurance policy. And the older you are, the more of your equity they will provide you, and they'll provide it to you either as a lump sum or as a fixed amount of money each month. And if you, let's say they agree that they're going to provide you $3,000 a month for life, that's one of the options. Well, if you beat the odds, and like my family, and you live to be into your late 90s, they may end up paying you more than your house is worth. But that's the risk they're taking. That's the that's mm-hmm. the um, risk of the of the of the homeowner or the the company doing the loan. Um, so they're giving you this money, and your mortgage goes. If you had a small mortgage remaining, your mortgage goes away. They give you a certain amount of money each month or a lump sum. But there's interest attached to that money that they're giving you, and that interest is building up on that property. So maybe they gave you $50,000, and the interest rate might be 4%. So over time, the money that the the, the loan on that property is now 54000 and then 60000 and then 65000 It's going up. Now, the 
back when homes were appreciating, the idea was your home would appreciate faster than this interest would pile up. But when a when a reverse mortgage comes due is if you die or if you leave your home to live somewhere else, then you have to sell that home. And when the house is sold, the money due that reverse mortgage lender is paid back to them, and any equity left after that happens is, is part of your estate. It's yours or goes to your children, however you want to do it. Where I have found reverse mortgages to be really helpful is someone who finds themselves in their 60s and they still have quite a they still got a mortgage payment, and they may have a fairly large mortgage left. And they use the reverse mortgage not so much to create cash flow uh, directly, but to kill that mortgage. They continue to live in their house, and they're well and they're healthy, but their mortgage goes away. So I find that many more people in their 60s still have large balances on their mortgage than what may have been at one time. Yeah, I I agree there. Um, we've only got a couple minutes um, left of the show here. Is there any um, last-minute things that you want to make sure that we cover here? We've got about uh, three and a half minutes left. Yeah, I think that um, we would have wasted our time if we don't end with a call to action. And my call to action to all of you is to visit a website, and it's a government website, and it's www.longtermcare.gov. So nobody's selling you anything here, but it's a very good place to start just getting your mind wrapped around long-term care planning, what the options are, how Medicare works, how Medicaid works. Um, If you don't have assets like a home or savings or 401Ks, then you're the person that Medicaid is intended to help and um, that those services are there. Service from a Medicaid facility is as good or better than service from a private facility. So don't ever feel like you will get substandard care because you're in a Medicaid facility. That's just not true. Um, So I would say go there, learn about those options. If you have assets, you need to look at uh, long-term care planning to include long-term care insurance. If you have any questions that I can uh, that you'd like to talk to me about or that I can answer for you. I may not know the answer, but I'll certainly help you find an answer. So feel free to contact me. And what's the best way for them to contact you, Mary Beth? Um, I got a phone number. They can call me and leave a message at 214-884-5184. 214-884-5184. I'll be happy to call them back. And um, I am light. Sorry, sorry go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I am licensed to sell insurance in the state of Texas, um, but I didn't want to use this time as a sales pitch. I really want to cause you to go to the site and start giving some thought to whether or not you should have a long-term care plan. Well, thank you for the wonderful information. And, I mean, you really posed some thought-provoking um, questions for us to ask um, in terms of preparing for our future. And I, I would highly recommend, you know, if you're out there and, you know, you're wondering what to do, um, check out the site Mary Beth gave you and then, you know, give her give her a holler. And I would imagine that if you couldn't service somebody, if they were a different part of the U.S., you'd be able to maybe refer them out to someone else. Is that something you can help with? Uh, possibly. I, I okay. do re- I do re- I do referrals very cautiously, you know, you just never know. Okay. Okay. Well sounds good. Well thank you so much for your time today. Um I really appreciate you being with us here today, Mary Beth. 
And I want to thank all of our listeners for um, hanging in with us. So it looks like we had lots of callers on the on the line and the computer, and I hope that you help us push word about Alzheimer Speaks Radio out by liking us and putting us on Facebook. In addition, um, we've got our next show coming up on the 18th with Dr. William Fry, and he is the original researcher who started the insulin um, research. So it'll be it'll be a really good program. Ellen Arnett will also be with us talking about the seven summits. So um, again, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to um, having you join us in the future. If you have any questions or comments, again, please feel free to uh, just shoot me an email. Thanks so much for being with Alzheimer's Speaks Radio today. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.